Well, the year was 1440, and it's the year that Johannes Gutenberg changed the world. It was the invention of his printing press that, was allow, that allowed for news to spread not just across a little neighborhood, but across a city, across a country, and across the world. That in fact, even the Bible that you may have in your hand is the product of Gutenberg's printing press. You see, if you have followed along at all with uh, in any of your high school classes, you would know that this would be known as a disruption. You see, Oxford defines disruption as a radical change to an existing industry or market due to a technological innovation. So for, for Gutenberg, it was that, you know, you used to have these scribes who would write these books, who would, who would handwrite their Bibles or, or a news press, a pamphlet that would go out to a community but then Gutenberg disrupts it by bringing in this new technology that completely changes, a radical change. Or maybe another example that we maybe will connect with a tad bit more is in 2007, our friend Steve Jobs comes out with the first iPhone. That now instead of having your razor in your, razor in your hand, your flip, your flip phone, now you have the internet in the palm of your hand. And Jobs is responsible for normalizing having a smart phone. Radical change, the introduction of a new idea, a new product into a given market. So why do I start there this morning? Is that as we walk through Acts chapter nine today, we're going to be introduced to a character who experiences radical change. And this radical change is not the result of a a new idea or a new product, but it's gonna be an interaction. It's gonna be a disruption with a person. And it's a person that changed everything. And so if I can have your attention for the next 20 or so minutes online crew, attention for the next 20 minutes, I know it's hard. I'm gonna give you everything I have to help us walk through this disruption in hopes that it won't just change whether or not we have a razor or an iPhone or whether or not you're scribing it out or if you've got the printing press, but that it will change the fabric and the trajectory of our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we'll be in Acts chapter nine, uh, starting in verse one. If I was to title today's message, it would simply be the disruptive gospel. And to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going, um, I'm gonna give you three truths and three exchanges, three realities about this disruptive gospel, as well as three exchanges that I'm gonna encourage you to make. I want you to trade in that razor for the iPhone. I want you to, to trade in the scribes for the printing press. So Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one, but before we get there, um, I would love to pray and I would love for you to pray. So would you join me? Father, I thank you for every woman and every man within the sound of my voice. God, that you know their names, you know their stories, and God, you are um, so glad that they're here today. So Father, would you speak to them? And if you would, in your own seat, would you pray? And ask maybe for the first time that, that God would speak to you. And if you'd be willing, uh, would you pray for me that I would be helpful to you? So Father, we love you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus through the power of the spirit, amen. All right, Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. And God's word says this. Now Saul, still breathing 
threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters. Everyone say letters. Letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus for this purpose. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So first character I want you to kind of pinpoint you in on today is Saul. This is the second time we've seen Saul in the book of Acts. The first was in chapter eight when we're seeing the stoning of the disciple Stephen. And and Saul is standing there watching this happen and the text says that he approves of it. And that Saul went from there destroying the church. So now we find Saul in the first, chapter, or first verse of chapter nine, and it says that he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing there is really a direct literal translation would be breathing in, breathing in. Like all what he is continuing to do, every, the oxygen that fills his lungs is threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And in fact, like, like Saul has no discrimination on who he's trying to arrest. It says, if I could find anyone, men, women who belong to the way, my goal is to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. So it's interesting here that he specifically asks for letters from the synagogue in Damascus. So essentially Saul, what Saul's thinking here is if I can get a list of the Jews who would all be um, enlisted at the synagogue in Damascus, then I can find which one of these are followers of the way or are followers of Jesus. And I can find them, I can arrest them, and I can take them back to Jerusalem for punishment and possibly death. So I I want you to see Saul this morning, friends. I I want you to see him, letters clutched in his hand as he heads towards Damascus with the sole purpose of stamping out this movement. Like like think about a a fire that gets just outside um, and is burning the grass and you stomp on it to to snuff it out. That his sole purpose is to snuff out this movement, to, to bind up believers, to destroy the church, to see this movement done away with. And he's heading to Damascus. That's how our story begins today. But if you flip with me to Acts chapter nine, verse 20, where our story ends, it says this. And immediately Saul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus, catch this, by proving that Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ. So all of the sudden, friends, the very man who is trying to snuff out and stamp out the religion is the very one who's standing proclaiming it. So what happened to Saul? A disruption a radical change to an existing person. How did it happen? Let's keep looking. Verse three, it says this. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was, as he, and he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So it's in this moment that, that Saul comes face to face, is, is down on the ground before Jesus. And I want, you, I want you to feel the weight of this moment. Saul's entire life has been about, I'm going to destroy this movement. I'm gonna take this down because I'm a devout Jew and I will not have my religion be, be cast upon this lie that Jesus is alive. I won't have it. But if there was a bottom line to the teaching and belief of Saul, it'd be this that Jesus is dead and he has nothing to do with our future. So stop believing that he's the Messiah. And it's in this moment that he comes face to face, eye to eye with Jesus. Can you imagine having your entire life rocked? Like your entire belief system flipped on its head? Like I thought Jesus was dead, but now all of a sudden I have this undeniable an irrefutable reality that Jesus is in front of me, that he's not dead, that, he's, that he does have something to do with my life and he's risen and reigning in glory. Like this completely stands in direct contradiction to Saul's life. He's been confronted by the reality that Jesus is alive. Or maybe think about it this way. Uh, my uh, my mother-in-law and I uh, share a love of John Grisham books. So, if you're not familiar with Grisham, he writes these awesome courtroom narratives um, where he kind of walks you through a case. There's all these twists and turns. I'd call them candy because they're so easy to read. Um, and, and they're just, they're terrific. But about three-fourths of the way through the book, um, the same thing happens. I'm sorry, John. Um, but like there is basically a brand new piece of evidence is brought before the jury. And this evidence is juicy and it's good. And this evidence completely changes the trajectory of the story. And in the same way here, Saul has undeniable, irrefutable evidence right before him, Jesus is alive. This lie that I've been trying to snuff out is actually truth. And so here is truth number one of this disruptive gospel, is that Jesus confronts us. That Saul is on his way to Damascus to continue to bind up and to stamp out this movement and Jesus stops him dead in his tracks and says, Saul, I'm not far off. I'm not a dead, I'm not, I'm not dead. I'm, a part, I'm not just a part of human or past. I'm a part of your future. And Saul is confronted with this like, oh, oh my gosh, like he's alive. And so what does this have to do with you and I? is that the reality is whether or, not we're non, whether or not we do not believe in Jesus or we do believe in Jesus, that there are going to be moments that Jesus confronts us, that he's, he's gonna deal with our sin, he's gonna deal with our godlessness, that, that Jesus is gonna rub up against the rough edges of our lives. A, a pastor I really respect, um, his name's Tim Keller, he says it this way. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. My toes hurt. And for the sake of what we're talking about today, if your God never confronts you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. That the direction and trajectory of your life, if it is not moving in the direction of God's best, there's a moment that Jesus steps in and is like, no more. 
Like there, there's a better direction for you. So, so hear this, I wanna be delicate here, is, is God loves you right where you are. Like, like hear that today. Like Romans 5, 8, like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you right where you are today, but he loves you too much to let you stay there. And so we have to be willing to say, Jesus, like you're confronting this sin in my life, this habit in my life, and, and, and I'm gonna have to, I have to do something with that. In Christian world, we call it repentance. We call it turning towards him. So it's in this moment that, that Saul is, is met with the reality, man, Jesus isn't absent, but in fact, he's present. That, he, that he's not just something of the past, but, he, but he's, he's eternal and moving towards the future. And so the exchange that Paul had to make, and it's the exchange I would challenge you to make this morning is this, exchange number one, is to exchange the illusion of Jesus's absence for the intimacy of Jesus's presence. That if I'm being honest with you, this is helpful for me today, is that in the moments that I am heading to the Damascus road with my own purpose, with my own plans that have nothing to do with God, I essentially am claiming with my life that I believe that Jesus is dead. That I believe that he's absent, that he has nothing to do. Like, I'm good. Like, God, I got this. Like, I can run my life better than you. Like, come on. And it's in these moments that I just kind of pretend like he's gone. But then when I'm experiencing the intimacy of God, it's like, man, he's in front of me. This is a undeniable fact that Jesus is Lord and I have to deal with it. And if I'm being honest with you, those moments that feel like, like God is so absent, like he's, he's so far off. Can I tell you the two characteristics of my life that whenever God feels absent? My Bible is closed and I'm not praying in my community. Because I mean, if we're being honest here, it's so easy, like, like whether or not, if you're just a human on planet earth today, it is so easy for God to feel like he's so distant. But I would just gently ask you the question, is your Bible closed? And, and I would gently ask you today, like when was the last time you prayed with your family? When was the last time you prayed with your spouse? When was the last time you prayed with your small group? Like, like, like these, these things that, 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 that web us together with Christ. Because here's the deal. He's not just an idea to be, to be believed in. He is a person to be followed and known. And he wants to know you. Exchange the illusion of his absence for the intimacy of his presence. God loves you right where you are today, but way too much to leave you there. And thankfully, he didn't just leave Saul on the ground but he does something with him. Let's keep looking together. Starting in verse eight, it says this. And Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Saul's been blinded. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there for three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Do, do you see the crazy delicious irony in this? that Saul, the guy who came to bind up Christians and bring them to Damascus, the powerful Saul, the, the brilliant Saul, the strong Saul, is being led, bound to Damascus, weak and blind and powerless. That it is being, he's being led there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complete flip of the story. But not only that, I want you to imagine, let's get in Saul's shoes real quick. You have spent your life attempting to silence and hush the man and the message of Jesus Christ. 
You have, I would argue, like he helped plan Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter seven and his whole, he's breathing in and out murderous threats against the church. Let's get in his shoes. And then you come face to face with the very Jesus you've been persecuting. Do you see him? What's he probably thinking? He's being led to Damascus. You know, Jesus doesn't tell him what he's gonna do in Damascus, but rise and enter the city and you shall be told what you must do. He, he's gotta be thinking, what are they gonna do to me? Like, 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 what are they gonna say? You know, I'm a devout Jew, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Like, it's only fair, you know. I'm probably, I know there's a good chance I'm gonna get tied to a pole and get pelted with rocks today, just like Stephen did. Or, you know, you know, the Romans are really into crucifying. I mean, Jesus was crucified. This would be a good way for them to get back at me, for Jesus to get back at me. See, I was, he was crucified on a cross. Maybe they'll, they'll know me to a cross. Do you feel it? And Saul has no clue that behind the scenes, God is, is, is working with a guy named Ananias. It's verses 10 through 16. For the sake of time, we won't dig into it too much. Um, and Ananias is, is, is sent by God to go to Saul. And here's what Ananias says. And Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized. Friends, do you see it today? Saul was not met with judgment, he was met with mercy. He wasn't met with judgment, he was met with grace. Think about it, brother Saul, you're in the family uh, Dale Carnegie, um, who you may be familiar with, he says this. He says, a person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. And I love that Ananias does Dale Carnegie one better. Not just does he call him Saul, he calls him brother. Welcome to the family. We're not here to condemn you, we're here to welcome you in. We're not, we're not here to, to rip you of things, we're here to give you the spirit of God, to welcome you into the family. And I love that the scales fell from Saul's eyes that symbolically he could no longer physically see, but he could, now that the scales had fallen, he could physically see and spiritually see. That he could see, man, this Jesus that I was attempting to snuff out is actually Lord. He's actually God and he's not, he's not condemning and he's, and, he, and, he's, and he's not here to judge me. He's here to invite me into more if I would repent and turn to him. And the scales fell from his eyes. And so here's the good news for us today. And if you don't hear anything I say today, I hope you get this. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. There is no sin in your life. Hear me. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you have said. There is nothing that you haven't done or nothing you haven't said that is too great for the grace and the mercy of God. And I'm not saying, oh, this is good. I'm not saying that God's going to sweep your sin under the rug. No, he dealt with it and he dealt with it on the cross. Like it's been paid for. 
So you don't have to live in the shame and the agony of your past. Like, like Saul truly persecuted, killed Christians. And, and God's not just like, you know what, Saul, no big deal. No, death is terrible. Death is always the enemy. Instead, Jesus says, hey, like, like Saul, you've done those things. I paid for it on the cross. Welcome, brother, you're in the family. And I love that in the book of Romans, it says where sin increased, grace abounded. So truth number two of the disruptive gospel is this, is that Jesus changes us. From the inside out, he changes us. And I'm just praying maybe for you today that, that Saul had scales fall from his eyes and maybe just proverbially like some scales would fall from your eyes today. That you'd see Jesus for who he is. He's good and he's kind. And then he's just and he's holy. That he hates sin, but he loves you. And he's dealt with your sin on the cross. He confronts us, but then he changes us. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 20, it says this. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. And then skipping down to verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving this Jesus is the Christ. So we see in this moment that, that, that Saul is not just changed by this disruptive gospel, but then he is sent by this disruptive gospel. And so truth number three is this, is that Jesus commissions us that's a fancy word of saying he sends us, that we're a sent on assignment by most high God. And we see that even by, with Ananias in this story as well. I know we had to skip past it, but in verse 16, it literally says, this Jesus who sent you, like, who sent, like he has sent me. And Ananias and Saul have both experienced God's grace and so they give God's grace. Maybe think about it this way. Um, this past month, my wife, Jameson, has lived in Birmingham, Alabama for um, medical school rotations. No, she has not left me medical school rotations. She's, so she's, just been, she's been there for a month um, and we were, she's so, we're so blessed. We had a, uh, a family of a mutual friend um, who allowed for Jameson to live with them for the past month. And this family, followers of Jesus, plugged into their local church. They basically finished their basement um, and kind of built in a little apartment for one purpose is they said, we want for our house to be open to anyone who needs it. And so this past month, my sweet wife, Jameson, had a place to stay. And, and not only did she have a roof over her head, but you know, she would come home from a 14 hour shift at the hospital and there would be a hot bowl of soup waiting in the microwave for her. And, and this family showed that the gospel isn't just good news about Jesus, but the gospel can come with a house key too. And, and the reason I tell you that story is that Jameson came home this past week and one of our first conversations back, she just said, Cole, I wanna do that one day. I, I, want, I, wanna have a, I wanna have a place, I wanna have a space for people, whether or not they're down on their luck or um, they, they just for a temporary stay that they can come and that we can take care of them, we can show them hospitality. Why did Jameson say that? Love embraced always becomes love extended. That grace embraced always becomes grace extended. That mercy embraced always becomes mercy extended. That hospitality embraced always becomes hospitality extended. And Saul, my goodness, has he experienced the grace of God in this story? 
that he deserved death and he was told, brother Saul, welcome home. And so, and same for Ananias, that he's experienced this forgiveness. And so it, it becomes a forgiveness embraced, forgiveness extended in friends. It is the same for you and me. As we sing these songs, living hope, my goodness was that good. Like that the cross has spoken. I am forgiven, embraced. And then we extend to the community in which we live. See, if, if you're anything like me, when I, when, I, when I hear someone, some pastor man talking about like God sending you being commissioned, it's like, does that mean I have to move to Africa? Like, like, like is that what that means? You know, like, am I gonna have to like go someplace, never have air conditioning again? Like, like is, is that what he's getting at? And, and, and maybe, hold on, sw- slight side note, maybe God has called you to go to Africa and you need to go. Like, like maybe that is you today and you need to go. But for a lot of us in the room, you don't need to go to Africa, you just need to go to work. Like, like, like you don't need to go to a third world country, but you do need to go to your kid's school. Like you, I, I'm not saying that you need, God is not necessarily calling you to go to a completely different place, a completely different space, but he is calling you to go there with a different purpose. Like, did you notice that Saul left on the Damascus, like heading towards Damascus, letters in hand, his purpose to bind and to bound Christians. He has an encounter with Jesus. He's confronted by Jesus. Jesus still takes him to Damascus. Same place, different purpose. And so the exchange that Paul made, and it's the exchange that you and I have gotta make is this. It's exchange number three. Is we exchange our plans for God's purposes. We exchange our plans for God's purposes. So, so what would it look like? Like even just take a moment to think about this. What would it look like for you to go to work tomorrow, not according to your agenda, but God's purposes? Like consider college student, like what would it look like for you to go into gym chem class? Yes, I'm staring at you. Like, like, like gym chem class, not with your agenda, but with God's purposes. Like, what would it look like, single mom, like, like, like to, to drop off your kids and when you head in there, like, like your purpose is, is not just your agenda, like I gotta get out of here as fast as possible, like, no, 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 like the purposes of God. Because love embraced becomes love extended. Man, this disruptive gospel, it confronts us in our sin and in our mess because Jesus isn't okay with our sin. He's not okay with your sin habit. He's holy and just, God hates evil. He's gonna confront it. But not only is he gonna confront it, he's gonna change us. And from the inside out as he changes us, he commissions us. So we started this morning talking about Saul's letters. got them from the high priest, we're heading to Damascus to stomp out the movement, to tear down the church, to silence believers, to bind up those that would claim the name of Jesus. So we started our story. And then we finished our story today with him proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And somewhere along this Damascus road, Saul's life changed. 
And in fact, Acts 23 tells us that it changed so much that he changed his name. That instead of being Saul, he became Paul. Can I tell you this? Paul also had some letters. But these letters weren't written to stomp out the church, but to build the church up. Not to bind up believers, but to set believers free. Not to, not to, silence, the, to silence the gospel, but to amplify the gospel. Can I tell you about the letters? It was Paul, Saul's letters to the Romans. It was Paul, Saul's letters to the church at, at Corinth, first and second. It was Saul slash Paul's letters to the Galatians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the church at Thessalonica, times two, the letter to Timothy, times two. Friends, half of our New Testament was written by this guy. You wanna know how disruptive our gospel is, how powerful it is, how much it has the ability to change things? The historical man of Saul who wanted to kill Christians is the one who's responsible for half of our New Testament. And so how dare we ever say that our sin is too great for the goodness of God? He can change you, he wants to. And so the encouragement from, from me today is would you be willing to let Jesus confront you? Open yourself up. Jesus, here, here's the baggage. I used to say when I used to teach at places, check your baggage at the door. Don't check your baggage at the door because Jesus wants the baggage. Like he can handle it. And then would you open yourself to his spirit and allow for the scales to fall from your eyes, allow for him to change you, allow for that mercy and grace to wash over your tired soul. <sighs> and you can catch a, your deep breath for the first time in three years. And then when you embrace that love and embrace that mercy, the only response will be, how can I extend this to our community? How can I give this away, this free gift I've received from Jesus? And here is the exciting part. If you would be willing to allow the disruptive gospel to get into the fabric of your being, the marrow of your bones, it'll change your world. It's changed mine, changed Saul's, changed my wife's, it's changed Mike's, it's changed Anne's, it's changed my mom's, it's changed my brother's. It'll change you. And, and I want us to get this too, that if we, like collective North Star, like if we'll allow the disruptive gospel to get into our, our, our fabric of what we do and this, this whole idea of living sin, it won't just change your little world. It'll change our world. And it's a mission worth giving our lives to. Can I pray for you? Father, I... Oh God, would you move in our hearts? And even now, would you, would you even ask God, what part of that was for me? Maybe you sit in this room every Sunday or maybe you haven't been here in a year. What part of that was for you? Was it that, man, Jesus needs to confront some things in your life. You're heading in a trajectory that's, that's not his best. Or maybe today you need to receive his mercy and grace anew. Or maybe you need to get off the bench and get in the game.
Spirit, would you just solidify some of those truths in, in our people's hearts today? Would you solidify, Lord, that truth in my heart today? Would you help me get in the game today, Jesus? So Father, now we respond and we sing to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.